what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host chris and today my guest is none other than greg lukianoff all right so greg is one of the top top guys for fire and fire if you're unfamiliar with this organization they are an organization that helps protect free speech rights on campuses all right and as many of you do know about fire uh more of you probably know of greg from his phenomenal book that he co-wrote with jonathan height called the coddling of the american mind so this is a book when i when i got canceled in 2019 i was just trying to understand what happened this really you know that experience really launched me into just reading and trying to learn as much as possible but anyways it was not long after the coddling of the american mind came out and i read it and even though their book was largely about things going on on college campuses uh i it, it helped me understand what was happening with kind of like outrage culture and just the sensitivities and everything like that and as many of you know like i'm very i try to be at least i try to be very compassionate and understanding towards other people but there is this sort of what greg and jonathan call uh safetyism but anyways i recently reread the book and i was like yo greg how about you come on the podcast so fun little fact greg and i have been talking for a while now um probably over a year or so but he's a super 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 busy guy and we've been trying to link up but he's extremely busy but uh yeah fun fact he uh he's actually helped get a lot of the guests <laughs> a lot of different guests on the podcast he's like hey you know even though i can't be on here let me make an introduction and stuff like that so greg is an awesome super cool guy i really appreciate it but anyways uh greg and i we we not only discuss you know free speech what that means you know uh the the limits and all these other things, uh, but we also talked a lot about, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, because that's what Greg noticed. So Greg has been very open about his struggles with depression. He'll talk about that a little bit in this conversation, but cognitive behavioral therapy really helped him out. And that's one of the reasons I love the book, because as many of you know, I'm a recovering drug addict. I work on my mental health regularly. And cognitive behavioral therapy is all about challenging these different distortions that we have in our brains, right? The way that we interpret and perceive the world. Like I used to have a mental filter that was just absolutely screwed up, but through uh, methods uh, that you, you learn through like CBT, it helped me deal with the world in a better way. And, you know, I just think this is so important because, you know, my sponsor always told me, like, he's like, Chris, it's a lot easier to fix you than it is to fix the rest of the world, right? And, you know, this doesn't mean that every, you know, every big organization or people in power get off the hook. That is not what it means. If any of you follow me or my writing, like I talk a lot about social issues and, you know, my issues with capitalism and all these structural changes and systemic changes that we need. You know what I mean? So it's not just like, oh, hey, you know, you can't do anything about it. We just got to fix ourselves. I am definitely not one those people but but when it comes to getting offended and things like that things that aren't uh uh you know physically harming me or my son that's where we can do some work and start to adjust our thinking and that's one of the reasons i i love uh greg and john's uh book uh because they talk so much about that so i love this conversation greg and i we dive into that we dive into you know free speech we dive into you know just a lot of the outrage and the culture wars and all sorts of things. And we actually recorded this right before everything happened with Russia and everything. But uh, Greg's uh, father is like Russian. So Greg talks a little bit about, you know, the Russian ideals when uh, his father moved here and kind of how he was raised and all that. So it's really interesting. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Make sure you go and you follow Greg over on Twitter and grab a copy of the book that he co-wrote with Jonathan Haidt, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, if you haven't read it yet. I know a ton of you have read it. But anyways, all that is linked down in the description below. But uh, before we get started, a couple quick reminders. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes, anything like that, um, because uh, I, I started working a couple of weeks ago. So the schedule's kind of shifted a little bit, not much. But yeah, make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Second thing, it'd be a huge, huge, huge help if you could head over to Apple Podcasts. Just stop, just pause. Actually, you don't even have to pause the podcast. Like as you're listening to the podcast, you can open up your phone and leave a rating and review. All right. If you can leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, be greatly, greatly appreciated. 
All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Greg Lukianoff about his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Hello, Greg. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a long time that we've been trying to schedule this and we finally got you on here. So uh, for the few people in my audience who might not be familiar with you, uh, can you give us uh, some of your background of what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm a, my name is Greg Lukianoff. I am the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Um, I've been there since 2001. Um, we defend free speech on college campuses. We uh, academic. Um, we defend academic freedom. We also increasingly do outreach to K through 12, and you know, write books and do movies about. Uh, for example, censorship and comedy, uh, a book, a movie called Can We Take a Joke that came out in 2015. But I'm probably best known as the co-author of Calling of the American Mind, uh, both the article and my uh, and, and the book that came out in 2018 uh, with my friend Jonathan Haidt. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be diving into that book. But like, I, I'm curious, I, I've never fully known the history, like you've been with fire since 2000. One, you said like, yep. what, what got you interested in this? Like, for example, recently I reread, uh, both of Jonathan, uh, Rausch's books. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And, uh, you know, reading, uh, you're, you're actually the one who recommended kindly inquisitors and I got into Jonathan Rausch's book, but this yeah. stuff has been Rausch going is on. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been going on for ages. So what, what inspired you to get into this line of work and like say, Hey, we got a problem and we need someone out there fighting for this stuff. Well, you know, I, a lot of it is, you know, first generation American. Um, my dad's a Russian refugee and my mother um, came over as a Ooh. British nanny uh, during the Mary Poppins nanny craze of the 60s. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of other kids who were either immigrants or uh, first generation like me. Um, and uh, when you're particularly when you're more working class, like the value of free speech becomes really obvious and, uh, mm -hmm. under those circumstances, particularly, you know, if your family is free from totalitarianism, like it really puts that in stark relief. Yeah. Um, so definitely I was inclined towards it anyway, when you're in a genuinely multicultural environment um, with people where there's no, where everybody's kind of from a different background and have, have different norms of politeness and what you are and are allowed to say, free speech starts to make a lot more sense as a rule. Um, mm. So I was uh, a student journalist, so I was already very pro free speechy, um, but I was a student journalist and this was as uh, Congress was trying to pass the Communications Decency Act in its original form, which tried to ban, I, I can hardly say this without laughing now, <laughs> indecent speech on the internet, um, which was like, <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, like, it was so laughably unconstitutional, um, and I specialized in it in, in my last year. It's what made me ultimately decide to go to law school, um, mm -hmm. and I was a little bit bummed, um, not for the outcome, I really liked the outcome, but that right before I started law school, um, the Supreme Court decision declaring the original version of the uh, Communications Decency Act uh, mm. unconstitutionally vague and broad happened yeah. like, like two days before I, uh, I actually started classes. So I, I felt like I missed out a little bit, but <laughs> I hyper-specialized in First Amendment and free speech. Uh, when I ran out of classes at Stanford about it, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. Like this was like clearly, you know, a passion of mine. And I, and it was weird to hyper specialize in first amendment since everyone's like, there's no jobs in that. But mm -hmm. what, what ended up happening was since I was so known for this being my thing, I, then I interned at the ACLU of Northern California, mm. um, that when Harvey Silverglade, um, he's one of the co-founders of fire came looking for a new legal director. Um, he asked Kathleen Sullivan, who's my mentor, um, and was the Dean of the Stanford law school at the time. She recommended me and that recommend that, that, that remains the greatest compliment I've ever received. Awesome. And so, you know, how did I end up in this line of work? I, I focused on an arrow, uh, like, like an arrow on it. I didn't expect it to be academia. Um, that yeah. was a little bit of a surprise, but even when I started in 2001, it was already shockingly easy to get in trouble for what you said on a college campus. Yeah, it's gotten so, way worse. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's, that's something I'm always interested in, right? Because like, I, I read a ton of books, but I, I am no fan of like history. Right. <laughs> but, but like when I do stumble across it, like, for example, uh, when I, uh, just read Jacob's book, uh, a history of free speech, I was like, a Jacob Mishingama. 
Yeah, there we go. There we go. You're you're, you're practicing. He, uh, like, I I was like, wait, this has been going on forever, right? And like you said, like, it's gotten, it's gotten worse. And something I'm always wondering about is like, what, what do you think it is about human nature that we try to like quash this like free speech where we're trying to shut down ideas that we don't like? And, and like, is it, it, is this something that we're going to be constantly fighting for ages, like forever? Like what's going on? We're finding we're fighting an aspect of human nature flat out. Um, Nat Hentoff used to be on the um, uh, on the fire board of advisors. I used to get calls from him, you know, about about things that like I remember he called me at like 9 a.m. when I was frankly kind of hungover after my 40th birthday party. He's this uh, and for your audience who doesn't know, he was he's probably the most famous jazz critic of all time um Mm. but he's he was also one of the 20th century's great defenders of freedom of speech and there's documentaries about him um but he uh, opened his book free speech for me but not for the quoting someone else saying that censorship is the strongest uh, instinct in human being sex is a different distant second um so yeah censor like the desire to censor is very much part of of human nature my my co-author jonathan height talks about um uh about sacredness uh, um and purity Mm. and and that i think that that in a lot of the religious instincts are closely related to the reasons why we want to censor there's also the idea that you know uh that power doesn't particularly like it because when people start you know thinking maybe there's a different way to live other than under under the pharaoh they they want to stop that right away like they they don't want that going into people's heads so i do think a lot of this is a battle against human nature uh but the reason why free speech sometimes wins and historically it rarely wins but it, in the more recent history it's had a lot of great victories it's because it works really well uh, knowing what people mm-hmm. really think is incredibly valuable to a society um, being able to experiment to be able to engage in devil's advocacy thought experimentation make ideas mm-hmm. better they point out blind spots so it, it, free speech is never going to be just fine there's always going to have to be people defending it um, but uh, I would say even 10 years ago I was more optimistic about uh what the direction i thought we were headed with regard to free speech than i am now <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's interesting too like uh uh for those in my audience who are unaware like i i came across your book uh that you co-authored with uh jonathan hyatt the colony of the american mind which we're going to dive into uh in 2019 when i got canceled on youtube right yeah. like that's that's actually what kicked what off were you my canceled whole... for by the way I, I, uh, it's embarrassing well, that i don't know why yeah <laughs> a long ridiculous story but uh so i'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic i was working at a drug and alcohol rehab center uh it's mm-hmm. like a luxury facility here in vegas costs like 30 grand to go to and i'm in there I'm not a licensed therapist or anything. I was doing more like peer support. I was doing like uh, groups, one-on-one sessions, all that stuff. And one day it clicked for me. I'm like, man, what about all the people like me when I got sober who had who can't come to a facility like this? But yeah. like, I'm going to go on YouTube and I'm just going to teach people about how I got sober. And, you know, I was really into understanding how like depression and anxiety work because that's, uh, you know, I started self-medicating. But anyways, sure. uh, what I found was was that the trick to YouTube was to pull in like a trending topic and combine uh-huh. it. So what I would do is like pull in like a pop culture story, right? So for example, <laughs> I, I, I'm starting to see how this could go wrong. Go yeah, on. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you, you have like just uh, an example I always use like Kanye West, very open bipolar stuff. So I'm like, okay, here's the story. What can we learn from it? Right. Mm-hmm. So if I were to make a video today, which I'm not anymore, <laughs> it'd be like, hey, Kim Kardashian left Kanye West because he wasn't treating his mental health. And then I would talk about my experience with relationships. And one of the reasons I have a loving, long lasting relationship, it's because I take my medications, I go to therapy, I go to 12 step. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so I would try to teach people based on something that they were already watching. Well, yeah eventually that uh you know i was making videos about youtubers and using that and everybody loved it they were like this makes sense right like thank you and people were thanking me and going to therapy but anyways eventually like a lot of people liked it i had youtubers Uh reach out and say hey you taught me something about what my experience but some didn't like it Uh so eventually that kind of blew up people said you're terrible you're an awful person this is da 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 and then why though i mean like like what what was it because you were giving bad advice or or you weren't sensitive about something or like what 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 was what was the hook yeah they always have to find a hook people decide they don't like you at one point um and then they they try to they'll try to find whatever they can 
So there was a few arguments. One of them was that I was diagnosing people, which I never did. You'll never find a video of me diagnosing anybody. Like, for example, I just used Kanye West. Kanye West said he had he has bipolar disorder. So if I said Kanye West, that's not me diagnosing. That's me no. saying what he said, right? Yeah. So people said you're diagnosing people. People said, you know, no, the, the moral and ethical conversation would come up, but I'm kind of, I lean towards utilitarianism, right? Yeah. So there was one big YouTuber who had a very toxic, abusive relationship that they were putting out there, getting millions of views. And I'm like, this isn't healthy, right? Like I think about all the people watching it and I'm like, we need to break this down and explain this is not a healthy relationship, right? Yeah. Because so many young people watch YouTube. But but yeah, so those were kind of the arguments. But then, as you see with cancel culture, yeah. then it starts turning into rumors and uh, speculation and conspiracies. Uh, people started saying like, oh, uh, Chris was telling people in his audience who were depressed that they should kill themselves. And yeah, it got crazy, man. So. Yeah. So that's how I stumbled across your book and so many books like it. I've I've watched people just completely make up stuff like right in front of me, you know, about about me, sometimes not even knowing that I, I'm the person mm -hmm. they're talking about or about other things I'd seen with my own eyes. And I'm like, wow, like we we're there. I think social media has made us worse, not better at being able to distinguish reliable narrators from confabulists. Yeah. Well, that's how I got into Jonathan Heights work. Uh, I had um, Kurt, why am I forgetting his last name? Uh, another Gray. Yeah, Kurt Gray yeah. on here. I got really into moral philosophy because something I realize is when people feel that they're morally justified, and you see this all the time with the free speech debate, is that anything goes, right? Yeah. So they can send you death threats. They could tell you to kill yourself. I had people threatening to rape and kill my mom. Oh you know my what God. I mean? And I always found, found that really interesting. And I was like, why is it that you can see this, this, what you deem an immoral act, right? Like hate speech or whatever, and then justify uh, so many terrible things, right? Yeah. And it is weird how the brain does that. It's like, yeah. I'm standing up for, for the righteous, so now I can say the most terrible, awful things. And and that's that's something that you probably see too in this free oh, yeah. fight, right? Like people just say the most awful things to one another. And it's like, well, aren't you trying to be, you know, moral? You're supposed to be the, on the moral high ground here, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Like the, I, I think Twitter and social media is utterly fascinating, but I think the aspects of human nature that it reveals, <laughs> to say the least, are not always exactly. positive. Um, but but fascinating nonetheless. And the, you know, the attractiveness of moral grandstanding, for example, like like how it it fills people with a sense of sort of superiority and purpose and all these kind of things. And you can see people. I would almost go so far um, as to, and I'm not diagnosing here because I mean this in its metaphorical sense addicted to it um yeah. that, that I, like i watch people who sort of sow the idea that anybody who's arguing free speech must be a hypocrite i, I watch mm -hmm. this all the time like with the nicole hannah jones thing i can't tell you how many times so nicole, to, for your audience i'm sure they know but we're saying um at unc chapel hill uh uh, uh, uh nicole hannah jones uh got a very prestigious position that comes and this is very unusual it came up immediately with tenure um in, in the journalism oh wow school. Yeah, that, which that. is which is which is one of these things where it's kind of like yes, this is also an unusual position, and it is strange to give someone um, tenure right away. Um, but it was also an easy. Uh, and then some of the board said, "Listen, she can have the position, but she can't have automatic tenure." Uh, and you know, my organization fire got right in there and said, "Like, listen, that's viewpoint based. You know, like if this is a, if this normally comes with tenure, it can't not come with tenure in the situation in which you don't like the person they chose." Mm -hmm. um, and it was amazing because. You had a lot of people who saw this immediately assumed all the free speech people must be hypocrites um, and yeah. just start like shrilly shouting about it as if this was the only case that was going on at the time. Like, yeah, this was actually an easy case. It, we, we got right in to, to be like, yeah, no, this is this is viewpoint discrimination. But you can go on CBS Morning News and, and to explain it's like, yeah, this is one case out of literally thousands I've seen over the years. And mm -hmm. to be frank, some of them are way worse than this. Um, but part of the attractiveness there is one, she's a big name. So there's a celebrity aspect to it Two, It sort of fits sort of like the, the idea that it was really about racial discrimination definitely fit like a, was very topical. Um, but also this like, oh my God, everybody else is a hypocrite. And I, I watch people tweet this stuff and I'm like, 
do you know that literally everybody who's at least serious on this stuff has already commented on this like two weeks ago and said that yeah. this, this is inappropriate but then people will start being kind of like oh but charlie kirk or what's his name the the, the guy who got canceled the, the um uh the, the guy with the berkeley riots milo you know yeah. it's like oh well it's like no those don't because they mention freedom of speech sometimes doesn't mean that they're actually like in the field and if you look at yeah. people in the field of freedom of speech we are quite consistent yeah yeah i've i've noticed that more and more lately with uh the picking and choosing of freedom of speech i'm sure you've seen it right with the banning oh, sure. of with the banning of books and everything like that is that let me ask you this is fire sure. doing anything to kind of educate people on like hey you can't pick and choose when you want this to work for you with you know the freedom of speech like for example i had uh you know you you uh introduced me to bonnie kerrigan snyder and i had yeah. her on here and like what's going on in schools and stuff like that but yeah. have you have you seen that like because for example back in the day we're trying to get you know like oh stop teaching uh creationism right yeah. and now it's like hey stop teaching anything to do like some like the the don't say gay law in florida that they're saying that they're trying to pass have you not heard, heard of this um i saw something about it and i didn't want to go down the uh, road yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so what, what what's going on so here? they're they're trying to and it's it's really fascinating too because i want to dive into the whole cbt aspect that you touch sure. on in the book but the way that it's a uh, phrase is that uh, anything that'll make uh, kids psychologically uncomfortable while discussing homosexuality or anything like that, right? They're trying to pass yeah. this bill in Florida um, and get that out of schools. But it seems like lately, you know, because the right always kind of says, oh, we're the we, we're for free speech and anti-cancel culture. Yeah. But recently, it seems like all the stories have been get CRT out, get these books out, get this out, all sorts of things. So I'm curious, like, how do we, how do we educate people on like, Hey, this isn't something you can pick and choose on. Like, yeah. because that well, that's, that's the issue, you know? Well, you know, we've written a lot uh, at fire mm -hmm. on the, um, attempts to have these anti-CRT laws applied to higher education. Um, and with a couple exceptions, which need to be noted, um, they're almost always unconstitutional as applied to higher ed. Um, and that's not even a close call. And we've been in front of that. You know, we take, a, I got a lot of hate mail from uh, people on the right uh, whenever I talk about this stuff, um, then followed by hate mail from people on the left um, for pointing out, for example, that um, one of the things that makes the K through 12 stuff tricky is that the state does set the curriculum. Mm. And, and that's been left out. Um, I was pretty crit critical of that article that Jason Stanley uh, did with a lot of my friends, um, like Camille, Camille Foster, just because it talked about some of these laws as being a national speech code. I'm like, you're 100% right as applied to higher ed. Uh, but when you get to K through 12, it gets a little more complicated because the state, this is the state speaking and, and it's rightfully uh, understood as a different one. However, when it comes to getting books pulled out of the library, um, that there's a Supreme Court case on uh, on the books called Pico that says, no, if it's based on hostility to the viewpoint, you can't do that. However, mm -hmm. if it's based on age appropriateness, that that you're, you're standing on better feet. And I don't think the current Supreme Court would find find the Pico case. But one more, however, <laughs> um, the structure and, and the wording of a lot of these laws that are coming out of red states, you know, about CRT, even if they do have power over curriculum is, is ludicrous, you know, like, like yeah. saying that people will never be uncomfortable. Um, yeah. that's, that, that's not tenable. That's that, that, that can't be a working standard, which is one of the reasons why I have put together a list of, of 10 principles for parents. So if you want reform, if you're concerned about, um, identity politics, and I, I'll go so far to say you should be, I mean, telling, telling little kids, um, very early on, you know, to really strongly self-identify with their race, even if you think you're doing it for, for a, a good purpose is something that will create a sense of, of, of otherness. The, mm -hmm. the idea of like, oh, we're. Uh, whereas you actually have a rare opportunity when people are growing up together that you can make them think of themselves as a as a as a cohesive unit to, mm -hmm. th there is i do think there is there is real harm there so one of the things i've been recommending are my 10 principles that, that i call empowering the american mind that talks about individuality and respecting people's and it also has a little bit of the cbt in there a little bit of mm -hmm. the um, but, but yeah, watching people, um, I'm working on a piece with Comey German, who, who does a lot of our stats work at fire, uh, you know, calling out some of the, I think I, I would feel really bad if I got the state wrong. I thought it was Nebraska, but it was like Republican legislators who 
passed a, a like a, a bill that was supposed to protect free speech and then like the next day like was like and this person has to be fired from this university for the free speech i'm like so it's like hypocrisy is absolutely yeah. there but i do think that sometimes people get so obsessed with pointing out the hypocrisy um they are really letting themselves off the hook from thinking about some of the deeper issues that the you know the people who might be on the other side of this are actually arguing about yeah yeah so let's let's dive into the cbt stuff because i think that's sure. when uh your book really clicked for me because when i saw what was coming after me right because i i talk mental health and you know uh i had i had people who had been following me for months or a year and i you know i taught them stuff that i learned from cognitive behavioral therapy right yeah. and you know uh i learned that my feelings aren't always a good guiding tool right because i i can be very emotional i can make a lot of bad decisions hell i i abused alcohol and drugs for nearly a decade just based on like mostly based on my my feelings right sure and and i was an emotional person i i destroyed relationships because of it so when i got sober you know i i learned to not trust my feelings all the time to sit back calm down reflect on this stuff and in the book you know, you open up about like your depression and how you learned CBT and all that yeah. kind of stuff and how helpful it was for you. And, you know, I eventually got into mindfulness meditation and stuff that me, uh, taught me how to accept and just manage these things. But I noticed that people were like, no, what you're saying makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it, you know, and and I was just baffled by it. But my favorite part of the book, and I, I've quoted it a million times was, and I probably misquoted, but anyway, you're talking about like, imagine going to a therapist and yeah. and like, telling them what's going on they're like you're right this is the worst thing to ever happen to you yeah. like that would be the worst thing and i just think if people sat back and just thought about that for two seconds they'd be like oh wow but it seems like you know we're we're nah, not all of us but a lot of us are becoming really sensitive and we we imagine this world where we're just always going to be comfortable so anyways can you yeah. break down how you saw cbt might be able to help with some of these issues going on sure with this this problem that we have this was, you know, the, the, this is, and I'm really glad you like that section because the, um, uh, when we were first doing the outline for coddling, um, John kind of wanted to move on from the arguments we made in the original article. Um, yeah. and I was like, nah, I really want to go a little deeper on, uh, on the CBT point. Cause it was the original point of the article. So yeah. just for, you know, for your listeners, um, very quickly, I got suicidally depressed in 2007. Um, I had to get myself checked in. Um, and, and I always make the point when you're that far gone, CBT isn't going to be enough. You need medication, you need doctor supervision, you need help. Um, but as I was recovering, I studied CBT, um, and you know, I, I wish it was more affordable. I, I was willing to spend the money to go to a good CBT therapist and they weren't, you know, they're not cheap. Um, and I, yeah. I, I and I think there's some efforts to sort of fill the gap there with apps and that kind of stuff, which hopefully mm -hmm. help. But, you know, uh, a year after I tried to kill myself, I was happy again, which was yeah. unbelievable to me. Um, and this was because I, I got into cognitive behavioral therapy and CBT, at, you know, at, at, just to explain it really simply, um, is essentially when you have these exaggerated thoughts, these exaggerated fears in your head, you literally write down what the sentence is in your head. You know, it's like I flunk flubbed this uh, interview for a job. I'm going to die penniless, you know, mm -hmm. um, and these are kind of normal things that you think, particularly when you're down or anxious or just, you know, um, just having a bad day. Uh, and the trick is to get into the habit of talking back to those voices. Um, so mm -hmm. labeling that as catastrophizing, for example, or fortune telling, um, mm -hmm. looking into the future. And then the, the powerful thing about CBT is it's not the power of positive thinking, it's the power of rational thinking and rationally analyzing your own thoughts, taking the deep breaths, standing back, going into your prefrontal cortex, like thinking about, um, yeah. thinking about it rationally. And it changed my life, it saved my life. I, I, I think I can say flat out. But working on campus, um, it seemed like administrators uh, for years were kind of like, oh, by the way, everybody overgeneralize, which is a cognitive distortion. Um, yeah. uh, you should catastrophize, you should fortune read, you should mind read, all of this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is terrible psychological advice, first of all. And it's also rationally not true. But thank goodness the students weren't really buying into it. And then, mm -hmm. boom. Late 2013 into 2014, you started seeing students hitting campus 
who really took this stuff almost as gospel, that, that, that essentially the presence of someone on this campus who has odious beliefs or that we think has odious beliefs mm-hmm. is a catastrophe. Um, and it, it, it'll be, uh, and we know this will harm people. My, you know, we know this will uh, create an intolerant environment. And that's when we wrote the original, the original article. I, I still uh, really want people to like, look at the list of, of cognitive distortions that we have in coddling the American mind. Think about how often we, yeah. we are actually now being taught to overgeneralize or taught to catastrophize or taught to mind read, mm-hmm. particularly on campus where we should know better. Yeah. And you, you guys have so many uh, different, just like anecdotes throughout the book as well. And I can't remember the exact story off, off the top of my head, but it was like uh, 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 a dean of a, a, a college or something. They were trying to help uh, and say, hey, help me understand, you know, how we can make things more inclusive or less racist or whatever it was. And they picked out just one word or one phrase they said and lost it. And here's what blows my mind, Greg. Mm-hmm. Like if I walked up to just about any person on planet Earth, any one of the 7 billion people, well, those who could talk and said, hey, are, are humans rational creatures? Most <laughs> people would say no, right? But yeah. it say seems semi. like- Yeah, <laughs> we're, like, we're like constantly saying like, okay, the, the way you feel, right, is reality, right? We're yeah. like telling people that. And what's interesting to me, so, so I'm half black, my son is a quarter black, I don't look at, he looks at even less, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my dad, who is full black, he's dealt with some racist stuff and everything like that, but he's, he raised me and taught me how to deal with like, you know, bullies and just people saying shit that I don't like and, you know, whatever. Um, but then as I got into like CBT and everything like that, I realized like my mental filter is for lack of better words, like fucked up. Right. <laughs> like I, when I, when I share my story or when I share about my recovery to other people trying to get sober, I tell people how my brain twists things. Like people used to just be like, Hey, Chris, how's it going? And I'm just like, what the fuck? What do you, you mean by that? About? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. But anyways, like getting to these topics of like, uh, you know, how we're just throwing around the words, you're a racist, you're a transphobe, you're a misogynist, just, and I'm just like, Hey, can we take a step back and say, maybe the way the person interpreted this is not the way it was intended. You know what yeah. I mean? Like how, how, how could we do better, whether it's faculty or parents or whatever, help teach people like, Hey, everything that you're feeling or interpreting is not yeah. exactly reality. Like, cause we can't send everybody to therapy as much as I would like to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, so what can we do to help teach people? Like, don't always trust your emotions like that. I, you know, I don't, I don't think this is by any means a easy problem to solve because I, th- I feel like a lot of this, um, way of thinking is unfortunately, um, reinforced by institutions that should be pushing you in the opposite direction. I, I think you can see a lot of this in, in the worst fa- aspects of how K through 12 is taught. Um, you can definitely see it, you know, from orientation to campus on, on up. Um, and I think that it's one of the reasons why, somewhat to our own surprise, we recommended, um, you know, we, this was not advice we went in, coddling the American mind, thinking we'd end up advise, advising people, but uh, there being a meaningful break between high school and college that of time, you know, preferably where people go, you know, don't just go, uh, yeah. go nuts, that they go work a job or something like that, like something mm-hmm. that could actually give them that sense of autonomy, that sense of, of uh, anti-fragility, you know, the idea that you, you actually can become, you can benefit from having some stressors like in your life and, and, and facing challenges can actually make you, you know, which should be obvious, facing challenges can make you feel more confident, more and happier in a lot of different ways. Uh, so, I mean, coddling was really trying to get at all the different areas where we think this is coming from and to, and parenting is, is not a small part of that. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think it is remarkable that somehow we became much more paranoid about threats to childhood safety during a period in which threats yeah. to childhood safety were plummeting. Um, that, that, you know, uh, how old are you from a masking? 36. Yeah. So like when, when we grew up, it was much more dangerous, um, than, yeah. than, it, than it is in the U S now, but you wouldn't have known that, um, it, it, in some ways comparing you, you would think that kids today are in much greater danger given the way, way we treat them. The other surprising part that we didn't see coming was lack of, um, unstructured free play. Um, is something that, mm-hmm. uh, like having unstructured time to play helps you feel autonomous, helps you feel like na- navigate social situations. We, it, we underestimated going in how important that was, but we've, t- there's a whole chapter on, 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 mm-hmm. uh, free time. But I do think that some of the lessons that are coming out of K through 12 and higher ed that have all gotten worse since coddling came out just in 2018, 
mm-hmm. um, are one of the stickiest problems to try to solve. Uh, I think that we've created sort of uh, norms of etiquette around a lot of this stuff um, that make it, you know, make it a very big taboo um, to tell, to give people, you know, positive psychology uh, advice. And, but the, but, but, the conception of people, you know, as being easily hurt by words and never being able to recover and being very fragile can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. If, if, if you believe you can't handle words, then you kind of can't handle words. That, that's, that, that's the way this works. So I, I think that so much of this requires um, really rethinking the way we do a lot of these already overly expensive, overly bureaucratic institutions from K through 12 on up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're both, we're both parents. So let me, let me ask you this because I've, I've had to catch myself and this is something that CBT and mindfulness has helped me with is just pausing. I love it. I lo- How old are they? Um, and, and that picture they're, they're little, but they're four and six now. Oh, okay. So my son just turned 13. So you, you might yet to deal with some of what this oh, is. Sure. So, so we can, yeah. we could spitball a little bit, but anyways, like your book, and so many, uh, you know, talking about free range parenting, which you guys yeah. discuss in the book, like I noticed that. So when I was a kid, right, growing up in the early 90s, right, and I started riding a bike, my dad would just be like, hey, be home by dark, right? And yeah. I would just go ride my bike, whatever. That's and great. now, so now, like my kid has a cell phone, like I, I had a pager, right? So like I had yeah. a, my dad could page me and then I had to go find a payphone, but he hardly ever did. And, you know, I started looking back like, oh my God, did my dad not care about me? But things were just different, right? And now my son has a cell phone and I catch myself because I'm like, you know, uh, I remember uh, my son, he tries to like exercise during the summer, you know, uh-huh. and he'll like go for a walk, like a mile or two. And I'm like, turn your tracking on your phone so I know where you are and everything like that. Like, I get so worried and then sure. I, I have to check myself. Right. But, um, you know, uh, bring up Kurt Gray and he wrote a Substack a couple of weeks ago where he was talking, it was almost like hedonic adaptation, right? Like as the world gets better, it seems like we have to make things worse. Problems of progress. Right? That's what we call it in the book. Problems of comfort is what I called it in my very short, like well, booklet that came out in 2014 called freedom from speech. But in coddling, we would call them the problems of progress that essentially when you can worry about like the lower level, non-life-threatening stuff, that's actually a fantastic thing. That means things are otherwise yeah. going pretty well. But um, the problem is that uh, as things get better, there are certain categories of things that will get worse. And one of them is, you know, as there are fewer, fewer threats and fewer stressors and easier ways to escape them, the less capable people tend to become of actually dealing with um, comparatively smaller stressors. Yeah. So, so how are you planning on dealing with this? Like, do you, do you think you're going to be worried? You're just let your kids go like, Hey, run around, go crazy. Like, like, no way, man. I I'm a, I'm completely an anxious parent. I've been, I've been extremely (laughs) clear about this. Like I, I wanted to have more of this in the book. Um, and, uh, I was told by a couple of people that, um, uh, like my, my, my main researcher that, that it would sound insincere that is that, that essentially like, you know, you're advocating for uh more free-range parenting and, and saying that you yourself are an anxious parent uh, might sound like you're just saying that and that but that's not true i, I am absolutely a, a, an anxious parent and i have to have my wife remind me of my values yeah. a lot and she does a great job of that um i have a whole art ar- i have a whole article about like these giant the, the terrifyingly tall steps that that yeah. we had at a place that we were staying during COVID to to get out of uh, get out of dc when it was when everything was closed and about how, you know, that took my wife reminding of my values and to let my two-year-old go, go, uh, go down them. We were very safe about it, um, in case parents are panicking. Um, but yeah. the, uh, but believe me, I, I, I understand about this, but I do try to do little things. And one is just remembering that, uh, a lot of times uh, we all know this from experience, the experience, the, the thing that you're terrified of will get way, way bigger. Um, in your head, um, if you yeah. avoid it, um, that it actually deserves to be. Because how many times have we had this experience of being kind of like, I'm so anxious about this. I'm so anxious about this. I'm yeah. so afraid of this, this thing happening in my life. I'm so afraid of this discussion, you know, this talk that I need to have with my wife or my girlfriend or my kids. And then you have it and you're like, huh, that wasn't so bad. Um, it was much the, the, the thing in your head w- w- was way, way scarier. So one thing I do try to do with my kids is if they say, you know, daddy, like this, this show is scaring me. Um, and maybe some, some viewers will find even this to be too rough, but I will you know, sit down next to him and say like, listen, let's watch it to the end. 
um which, uh, and i think you'll be uh, i think you'll be pleasantly surprised because usually it's not in kids shows like it doesn't work out um and letting them know they can do that uh mm-hmm. it, it by itself is helpful you know being less um less paranoid about little little injuries and that kind of stuff um is, is helpful too but yeah i mean i'm an anxious parent i um oh but here's here, here's actually a very interesting thing that came out of kate julian's great article in the atlantic she's a, she's an atlantic reporter she did a a, a, a uh, an article which weirdly doesn't mention coddling even though it's all about like our theories of coddling <laughs> um so much so that she actually like went to she talked to heights to say like oh yeah I'm, I'm writing this thing um but it's about how parental anxiety um about how it's rubbing off on the kids was a bigger yeah. motivating factor that, that than we thought and i do think mm-hmm. that some of this is absolutely from the fact that we favor fancy schools more than we probably should getting into those schools is really mm-hmm. difficult getting the super prestigious clerkship is really difficult um and in a book called the meritocracy trap which i have some issues love with. that i love that book we'll I, talk I, about I, that sometimes <laughs> well i i have issues with it because it, it makes it sound like lawyers have but no choice, you know, to go this incredibly okay. stressful route. I'm like, as a lawyer who opted out of that, I, I, yeah. I kind of like, I know a lot of people who didn't feel okay, like I, they, can, I can agree with you there. They yeah. have to make a quarter million dollars. I mean, that was my superpower too, since we were poor when I was until I was probably about 11, um, you know, $50,000 a year starting salary at fire was like, wow, that's <laughs> what rich people make. You know, like that, 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 <laughs> right. that, that, that was kind of, that was kind of a superpower. Um, but I do think that the, uh, the one of the most interesting things about that article is just talking about how the competitiveness, like the vibing that parents are producing um, is hitting their kids, partially because of this program at Yale called the Space Program. I forget what it stands for, um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's an acronym uh, that tries to rein in parental anxiety and has been one of the most effective uh, treatments for, uh, for childhood, for, for, for the anxiety of their children, which is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I actually, uh, a long time ago, I, I don't really read too many parenting books anymore. Like sometimes I'll, I'll pick them up, like I had Melinda Winner Moyer on here and uh, some others about their books. But anyways, way Who, back when who, I, who's, who's Melinda Moyer? Uh, she her. wrote a book. Uh, what is it called? How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Fantastic <laughs> book. <laughs> as soon as I saw the title, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I need that book. So yeah, she came on. But uh, but yeah, like uh, when I was like two or three years sober and I was so worried about screwing up my kid, yeah. I read this book. Um called uh, Parenting from the Inside Out, right? And it talks about how we bring a lot of our childhood anxieties yeah. and stresses and depression and put that on our kids and it becomes this cycle and everything. And that helped me a lot. But also what gives me a little comfort is I've always tried to train my son to be a critical thinker, right? Yeah. To make good decisions, to think things through. And it's helped me let go a little bit of my anxieties because I'm like, he's a smart kid. He makes good decisions. He's been faced with tough decisions a lot and he, he tends to go towards the right one. More often than not, he's a kid, so he does dumb stuff, you know, like any other kid. But, but I think that helps me get rid of some of my anxiety because I'm like, Chris, you've taught him to think well. Let him go do some stuff. You know what I mean? One thing I wanted to ask you about was something I asked John McWhorter when he was on here, too, is because you guys discussed microaggressions in the book. Yeah. All right. So here's kind of my curiosity around this term right sure. so so i see everything on a spectrum like you and uh jonathan Hyde talk about uh black and white thinking right like yeah. people are just good or evil right so when i look at like microaggressions i see that on a spectrum rather than being black and white right sure. absolutely so i see like a microaggression being over here rather than someone just like saying something extremely sexist or extremely racist like drop you know like yeah. those types of things so i'm like well are microaggressions really a bad thing because we're saying that it's not as bad as this, you know, like I get the yeah. catastrophizing of it, but yeah. do you think there is a place for like, oh no, that wasn't like serious racism. That was kind of like just a microaggression. Like, do you yeah. think that we can adopt that to not be a terrible thing? You know what I mean? Microaggressions, it's interesting because I, I I do feel like I, despite saying this a lot, people aren't really getting what our point is about uh, microaggressions. Um, it all, and, 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 and it's, uh, are they real? Of course they're real. Like uh, the, the idea that people slight each other all the time, um, it was saying things that might be racist or classist or sexist, um, uh, without realizing it, um, that's part of human interaction. And it's something that as you get older and smarter, you should try to figure out ways to do it less often. Um, but the, my issues with microaggressions are one, um, that it's not 
very well define what distinguishes a microaggression from a, a, a more serious you know, macroaggression in a lot of the a, a lot of the description of it. And a lot of and by the way, actually, I, for, I forgot a step there, which is it's the implementation um, of of policing microaggressions that 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 troubles me more than yeah. the the study of it. I think as an academic topic, how we slight each other um, is incredibly important to know. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm also first generation American where it's kind of like, yeah, like the you you have to be able to let people fumble and, and say the dumb thing that actually is, is a perfectly I mean, like, you know, I, my, my mother's British, which is very, very much politeness, um, hyper emphasized. And my dad's Russian, which yeah. has a very like high premium on, on brutal honesty, you know, like, <laughs> um, and so like there, there are even our cultural norms that are kind of like the onus is more on you to, to be able to handle in sort of like if you're, if you're getting advice from, you know, like a, like a, like a young Russian dude, it's going to be much more like you can handle all this. Right. And there actually is uh -huh. a little bit, a, a little bit of this in, in, in Britain. So I think that the reality of microaggressions doesn't mean it's less complicated. I think that we still need to give people. Uh, the benefit of the doubt to try to yeah. figure out where they're coming from. I think that's essential. But the thing that really bugs me in height about microaggressions is that if you overemphasize the idea that people are sliding you and you take for, you know, as a as a basic assumption that, you know, all white people are racist, that all that, that racism is kind of like the, the fundamental construct that dominates the world and that they are against you and that and that essentially if you uh you should really police what people say to see the different ways in which they're actually insulting you is setting up someone for a pretty miserable existence yeah. because it it can lead to a kind of there was a there was a good book called racial paranoia um by uh, john l jackson a black scholar at university of pennsylvania talking about how this can foster this really horrible kind of environment that if, if you're, you're basically kind of like giving the the bad psychological advice of being yeah. like sweat the small things yeah. um, like but by all and look and look for this so i i think that there's a certain some of the stuff that we're teaching this generation that's hitting higher ed with higher rates of anxiety higher rates of depression uh higher rates of suicide and self-harm some of the advice we seem to be giving them is going to make things worse if we don't really think it through now mm -hmm. again microaggressions are real um you know i definitely have seen people absolutely uh in, insult people by saying something they didn't even realize was, was insulting them many, many yeah. times over but i've also seen people say something very normal like where are you from you know yeah. um to to someone and suddenly it gets turned into like this thing and particularly for those of us who are first generation it's like that's what we always ask everybody like we're like no, no, very yeah. few people's parents are it's like great great like you know going back far enough nobody's almost nobody's like actually from here and in the environment I grew up in, it was kind of a safe guess that people were maybe maybe two or three generations separated from, uh, you know, from, from some other place. So I, I I do think that micro it, it creates an interesting issue, but one but the 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 most clear cut part of it is when schools pass anti microaggression policies, they highlight truly ridiculous stuff yeah. because when they have to put some flesh on it, it ends up looking like what wealthy overwhelmingly white liberals think you shouldn't say yeah. um and, and this this happened at the, at the uc system for example so the operationalizing turning these into speech codes tends to be an a, a, a ridiculous exercise because when it comes to what's actually a microaggression it's always contextual yeah yeah it's interesting like when i'm talking about these microaggressions i remember like part of my sobriety was i realized how many little things would completely ruin my entire oh, day. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Right? And yeah. I was like, I am tired of living this way. Like, for example, I'm a bigger guy, right? I've, I've been self-conscious about my weight for a long time, right? And something that like annoys me, but I don't let fuck up my day anymore is when a stranger, when they're trying to get my attention, they say, hey, big man, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I could interpret that as a microaggression. And there's this whole route uh, or this whole realm that I haven't touched on yet, but there's a lot of like uh, body positivity books that I've read and things like that. And yeah. they really dive into those like microaggression type things. I'm like, yo, we got it. We got to just deal with it. You know what I mean? Like there's so many yeah. things that we're all self-conscious about. Not everybody's going to be, you know, sympathetic to them or even realize it. And kind of what you're talking about, like one cognitive distortion is like mind reading. Right. Yeah. And I got really into a few months ago, deception detected, uh, deception detection and how uh -huh. terrible we are at it. Right. Oh, we're awful we're at it. 
we're terrible, but you constantly. I actually was a little worried, worried when you said that. I'm like, you don't believe that we're good at that, do you? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no. yeah, people are no, not good but, at it. But yeah, but you, I'm sure you, you notice what I do too. People think they know another person's motives and intentions constantly. Like you meant to say this, you meant to slight me. You meant to say this thing that was semi-racist. You know what I mean? Where uh, yeah. I was like, uh, you know, what's, uh, you know, I, for, I forgot what that razor was, but it's like, you I know, was. uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. 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 And it's like, I try to give people that benefit of the doubt, but I only have a little bit more of your time. I, I wanted to ask you yep. with COVID. Yeah. There's no riots or anything crazy on college campuses. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing better. But yeah. I know you, I know you can't tell the future, right? Uh -huh. But like I'm like, oh, things are getting better. But like, cause when you guys wrote the book, it was like Milo and people were like throwing shit yeah. and breaking windows and everything. And I'm like, oh, we're not doing that anymore. I'm like, but people have been doing school yeah. from home. Like, do you see that coming back? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I actually, the last two years, 20, 20, 2020 and 2021 have been the worst years I've seen in my entire career flat really? out without meaningful comparison. I mean, 2017, <laughs> as you, as you point out, we had the, we had violence, which, which, which yeah. was scary. So I guess that would be the one meaningful uh, uh, comparison is we probably had three or four incidents of like real violence. Uh, one very large scale one at, at, um, at Berkeley in response to Milo showing up, which of course led to the assaulting of people who were just there to see what the riot was about yeah or or reporting on it which is always the way these things work um even if you think it's justified the people who get hurt or you know anyway um so 2017 was disturbing but 2020 we and we all thought it was going to be a quiet year you know like we had 80 percent of campuses i think maybe more were shut down people left campus so how bad could it possibly be and then it just, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, things went yeah. completely crazy on campus. And what was so, so you know, frustrating, Height and I talk a lot about police reform in a, in a section of the book. Like we we, we try mm -hmm. we try to be very nonpartisan, but we're both you know both we're both left of center. Yeah. Um, but we'll try to find things that people can agree enough on um, to uh, um, to to forge some bipartisan cooperation one of the things we were thinking about was policing and criminal justice reform and, th and there has been real momentum for that so my hope was after uh the murder of george floyd like what you would see would be and this did happen just not enough in my opinion of people talking about common sense you know reform with regards to you know making sure that, that these kind of abuses stop happening or at least happen yeah. a lot less often but unfortunately on campus, um, it turned into this circumstance where people were reporting, you know, uh, offensive things people had sent in, you know, private text messages to them, you know, uh, years ago, they were, they'd kept, um, there was a case in, um, uh, at, I think it was Harvard, the New York times covered as if it was like a very serious case where someone mm -hmm. had, um, uh, like a white student used the word, uh, uh used the N word. Um, and it, like, uh, it, um, like in a, in a short video that, but she said just having gotten her driver's license, like it was really clear yeah. in context she was being giddy and joking. And that led to her getting her admission because someone actually held on to that video and wanted to ruin them. There was oh, a, wow. there was a right winger that, that, that I knew who I became friends with over the years, Mike Adams, who after getting canceled at UNCW killed himself um, at mm. UNC Wilmington. So it was nuts. And the last two years, even though people aren't on campus have been especially awful. We, we saw something like 130, I think we, uh, attempts to get professors, you know, for lack of a better yeah. word, canceled. Um, yeah. in, in, uh, 2020, we saw slightly fewer, um, in 2021. So I wrote this really long piece for a reason. And the entire piece is called the second grade age political correctness. Um, I know that that's probably a term that people, you know, uh, kind of poo poo, but that's part of my mm -hmm. point is like, as soon as we change the, the language, um, to something that, uh, you know, is, is has greater approval of the very, you know, of, of the Twitterati, for example, it's going to leave other people who understand the commonly accepted term out of the conversation. But anyway, mm. my point with the reason article was there was the first grade age of political correctness about 85 to 95, uh, speech codes looked like they were defeated right and left made fun of political correctness on campus. Um, so it seemed to kind of recede, but it didn't. That there, there was yeah. that essentially there wasn't the meaningful kind of reforms that would make these kind of situations less likely. In fact, the hyper bureaucratization of universities led to the fact that actually 
despite being defeated in courts of law, speech codes were more common in 2005 than they were in 1995. We found about 80%, like almost 80% of schools had laughably unconstitutional codes despite oh, wow. getting defeated in the courts in the 90s. So my point there was just, just like you were saying, doesn't seem to be getting better. My fear is that it can't be as crazy as it's been over the past couple of years forever. You eventually run out of dissenters. You eventually yeah. run out of people who are willing to stick their neck out. Um, and that's a problem all by itself. So it's got to calm down at some point, but we really need to be, we, we can't just let things go on until the next convulsion of, 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 of sort of politically doctrinaire sort of conformism. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a few people talk about that. I think, uh, uh, Kat Rosenfield mentioned that on a podcast too. Like feels like we're getting to this peak. Right. And something I noticed after I got canceled was like, literally, literally every person who made these huge videos about me and made all this bullshit up, right. At some point over the last two, well, coming up on three years since it happened, each one has had it happen to them too. Mm. So that kind of, wow. for lack of better words, that kind of gives me hope, right? Yeah. That so many people who are doing this, right? That joining the mob and then they're having the mob come after them that the pendulum's going to sway the other way and people are, yeah. there's going to be more people who are like, this isn't okay. So last question, I have a couple minutes of your time. Like, sure. how do you, with this coming up and bubbling up, getting worse, getting better, how do you not give up? Where's your hope come from? What <laughs> makes you get up and go to work and not say, you know, this is all fucked. I'm just, I'm done with this. Just get rid of it. It's kind of funny. I'd say that I'm a temperamental optimist, um, but I think that's also because I'm half Russian. Anything that is not, you know, we are all going to die um, yeah. sounds optimistic. So like I, I, the, um, uh, but I do st still think of myself as being optimistic about a lot of stuff. I'm not super optimistic about the next 10 years in the US, um, which is not the nicest thing to say, but that's partially because I think the right and left have both lost their minds entirely. Um, yeah. I, I'm very scared, uh, like what happened on January 6th couldn't, should not be, uh, should be taken very seriously. That was one of the most shameful days in American history, but, on uh, but at the same time, what happened in downtown Portland and Seattle should be taken very seriously. And, and like the, um, the number of small business owners, almost, you know, all of them, people of mm -hmm. color who, who were harmed during those things and it got very poor coverage. So I think that, uh, we're in a very difficult state, um, with the current, uh, st state of media, uh, um, and higher education to deal with it in a way that doesn't just make things worse and worse. So I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> what makes me optimistic, not the next 10 years. I, I, I think that the, the, I really, you know, to be partisan about it, I hope that Trump, Trump doesn't run. Yeah. Um, the, uh, um, but I also think that, that what's going on with the left, um, also kind of denying that there's a problem at all has been very strange. What makes me optimistic long-term? Um, that's free speech works really well, um, yeah. that asking questions, being able to answer them honestly, uh, is a very effective way to know what's wrong with your society. It's a great, um, tool for innovation. It's a great tool for democratic, um, uh, discourse, but also for just getting to know people as people to, 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 to mm -hmm. you know, my, my whole kind of take on freedom of speech is very simply, you know, like my, my, my spin on it is that it's just always valuable to know what people really think full stop. Yeah. Always. Um, so I do think that the, the free speech is, it is powerful and, it, and its benefits, um, are clear, but I don't think it's going to win, win the day, uh, anytime too soon. And without some really scary stuff happening in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm optimistic about, 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 a, <laughs> a, a, about a really rough decade coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, and I'm I hope I'm wrong to be clear. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that more people see that. Yeah. There are more pros and cons to, to yeah. free speech, but, but yeah, great. Better than the alternative, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thank, thanks so much for joining me. You're a super busy guy. Uh, yeah. Your book is out. I believe you guys just came out with an updated edition with a new afterwards or something like that. The too? funny thing is we didn't, um, because oh. we wrote an afterward that ended up being like 50 pages long because since 2018 it's been a little it's been a little busy so we've been running it on persuasion i actually owe them the next installment which is actually about um 
problems of education schools and I think a lot of the the problems that we see uh the education schools have a disproportionately negative role in that partially because of where people from end up but I'm also kind of uh, like trying to figure out like how to wade into this while also making the point that a lot of the backlash against K through 12 is actually highly unproductive and you know yeah um so we're we're, we're doing what was going to be the afterword in the um uh at persuasion and we're making relatively modest edits to the to, uh, to, to the old um, to the original uh, version of it and then i gotta start working on my next book uh yeah that that's that was gonna be uh my last thing so where can people find you to keep up to date with the updates and then when's the next book coming out sure well i don't know when the next book is coming out um i shouldn't talk about it yet because i have a proposal in front of my agent um for the next one i don't really have time to write a new book but i'm yeah. gonna do it anyway because you, you know it's, it, i feel like i have a duty to um you know i'm pretty easy to find my my last name you know spell my last name um but the uh i'm also g lukianoff on um on twitter uh, that's where i put a lot of my stuff and also the fire.org um you know that that's uh that's where I've devoted my career to, and we do some amazing works. And for those of you who are sort of skeptical of there being free speech problems on campus or see it more, mostly from a partisan kind of, kind of view, even if you just help us with, with, with the cases that are, uh, that are the ones you politically like, great. You know, yeah. what, what I'm tired of is people pointing out like the being like, oh, these guys don't care about that case. Um, look at this example that, that we're holding up now. And they only use it to hold up the example and don't actually like write the school or say, I object to this. So please yeah. try to pitch in, take a look at what's really happening. Um, and, and, you know, try to stand up for, uh, stand up for others the same way they wish they, they would, you, they would stand up for you if you were in a similar situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you guys are doing a, amazing work and you have an awesome team. So, so yeah, I'll link all that stuff down in the description. And yeah, Greg, thanks so much for coming on. And whenever that new book is coming out, we'll get you back on here. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was great. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg. He's such an awesome guy. And, and yeah, I really, I really hope that you guys, uh, you follow Greg. He, He's always like, he's, he's a great follow. He's a great follow on Twitter. Let me tell you, like he talks about, you know, just uh free speech cases. He talks about, you know, just current events, but like sometimes they'll like nerd out and talk about like comic books <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. But I've also got a lot of great book recommendations from Greg. For example, uh, Jonathan Rausch, never even heard of him. And Greg, uh, one of Greg's reading list I saw, and I was like, I'm going to grab this. And Jonathan Rouse, he's written some of my uh, favorite books, like since I uh, picked him up. So Greg is a great follow. Make sure you're following him. And if you haven't yet, if you haven't yet, make sure you grab a copy of The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, if you're a young person, um, you know, not only is it helpful for you and like how you kind of, you know, deal with stuff going on, like in college or in high school or whatever, like check it out. But I think more importantly, as parents, we really, really, really need uh, to to recognize what's going on and read this book. As Greg and I discussed, like, listen, I am an anxiety-prone father. I'm constantly worried about my son all the time. He's, he's you know, he just turned 13. Uh, addiction and mental health issues run in our family. I want to wrap that kid up and just, like, bubble wrap and throw him in his room and lock him up forever. But I can't do that, right? So how do I teach him to navigate this world? How do I teach him to have a thick skin? How do I teach him to just let things go that don't really matter, right? How do I teach him to deal with bullies without it ruining his life or his day you know what i'm saying so like i think it's really 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 important uh for us as parents to teach our children resilience and and because you know uh one thing i i i, I try to look at right as as much as i talk about social change and all these other things you know i also recognize you know, uh, what, what is an unrealistic expectation? And in my opinion, something that, you know, Greg and I discuss, right? Like an unrealistic expectation is that everybody is going to be nice and everybody is going to say exactly what I want to say. Right. So if that's not the case, how do we prepare our children for that kind of world where things will not be perfect, you know? So I really, really, really hope you guys read this book if you haven't yet. So again, head down in the description, follow Greg, grab a copy of The Coddling of the American Mind. And before I let you go, make sure you're following me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. That's all linked down in the description below. Uh, other thing, if you didn't, if you didn't do it when I asked you at the beginning of the episode, 
whip out your phone, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and leave a review, all right? It helps out a ton with the algorithms and people coming across and like, oh, is this a decent podcast, you know? It helps a ton. So if you can do that or and or share this episode, that helps out a lot as well. Uh, but some other things you can do to support the podcast, uh, link down in the description is a link to my Substack, the rewiredsoul.substack.com. If you become a paid subscriber, uh, it's $5 a month or $50 for the year. And you get all of the regular episodes a day early. So some of you are listening to this episode a day early. So you can become a Substack subscriber. Uh, also, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. Uh, if you're interested in learning about my experience being canceled, I wrote a book about it. It's over on my website. And also some other books about mental health, addiction, recovery, and all that. And lastly, lastly, if, if you were like, oh, this cognitive behavioral therapy thing sounds kind of cool, sounds kind of interesting, right? Um, down in the description below, there's a link for better help online therapy. Uh, when I got canceled, I, uh, I used better help. So I have personally used this. I, uh, you work with a licensed therapist, uh, therapist, it's affordable, it's online. And, and yeah, they helped me out a lot. My therapist was trained in CBT. Uh, I also got into rational emotive behavioral therapy too, which is one of my favorites. So yeah, if you're interested in that, check out uh, that affiliate link for better help down in the description below. All right. But another huge, huge thanks to Greg for taking the time to come on. Uh, like I said, we've been trying to plan this for months and months and months. It's been almost a year. So huge thanks to him. Make sure you follow him, grab a copy of his book. And yeah, for all of you, uh, I do have one more episode coming out for you this week um i actually just recorded an episode with none other than kathy o'neill she is the amazing amazing author who wrote the book weapons of math destruction she's been in uh you know a bunch of documentaries talking about algorithms and all that stuff she has a brand new book coming out next week called the shame machine i just sat down and chatted with her so uh yeah before her book comes out, I'll go ahead and release that episode. So make sure that you're following me and you stay tuned. All right. But other than that, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time.